This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk about the Harvey Weinstein case. Because there was a sentence handed down today to 67-year-old Harvey Weinstein of 67 years in length. Weinstein was convicted of raping an aspiring actress in 2013 and a number of other things, let's say. And there is a second criminal case as well. But 23 years in this. His lawyer was saying, please don't give him 23 years. He's 67. He will die in prison. The judge didn't care, making this very different. Joining us right now is Professor Wayne McKay, Professor Alexander McKay, Professor of Law at Dalhousie University. Professor McKay, in watching the proceedings surrounding the Harvey Weinstein trial unfold, what has caught your eye? Well, first of all, just given the high profile and big personalities in this case, that in itself is very interesting. But I think one of the major plots that's playing out is how this fits and how this is going to advance the Me Too movement and the current thinking on issues of sexual assault or in uh, concerns about uh, prior to the conviction, whether it would set it back. We see that 23 years has been the sentence, which if you look at what it could have been, is on the high end. What does that suggest to you? Well, it suggests to me that uh, the Me Too movement is having an impact in not just the general public, but in the minds of judges and others uh, deciding how serious this is, because they, they have concluded, I mean, this sentence sends a very clear message that the conduct of Mr. Weinstein was very reprehensible, and therefore justifies this very significant sentence. That at least is the view of the judge. It no doubt will be appealed, but that's the view. Now, if we look back in time, we think back 10 years, 15 years, would something like this sentence, would that have even been imaginable? Not remotely imaginable. And in fact, in many sexual assault cases, one of the really, one of the many disturbing things, but one of them is how light the sentences were. Sometimes you'd get 90 days, sometimes you'd get, I mean, you wouldn't probably get 90 days for something, but you might, and certainly uh, a couple of years was considered fairly substantial. So this is a very significant sentence, and even more so when you consider the fact of uh, Mr. Weinstein's age, that it uh, may well be pretty close to a life sentence. And that was something that his lawyer had argued, saying if you do have a lengthy sentence, then it is like a life sentence. And for that to be carried out, does that make the punishment somehow seem more severe to you? Well, I think it is more severe, and I'm sure these will be points raised by his lawyers, but the the, the charge that they did not establish of sort of predatory rape uh, would have had a, a maximum life sentence, but that was not substantiated. So I'm sure his lawyers are going to say indirectly, you are sentencing him as though he were guilty of predatory sexual assault. Now, I don't personally think that's a fair argument, because the other counts also justify a sentence as long as the one he has. It's just that courts have not normally gone near that high end of the scale. They've often been much, much more towards the low end of the scale. 
We are talking with Professor Alexander McKay from Dalhousie University. We're looking at the Harvey Weinstein sentencing that has been handed down today, 23 years in that sentence. Uh, Professor McKay, you had said a little while ago that the Me Too movement was more than just a hashtag. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, I suppose in one way it's an effective hashtag, but it is more than that because it really has caught on in a way that has raised the consciousness of people about how serious sexual assault is, how prevalent it is, and how and why we as a society need to respond in a more significant and appropriate way. And that's what makes the Weinstein sentence today really significant, is it does seem that that message is getting through. This is not a minor thing. This is not a rite of passage. This is not simply a consequence of being, well, in most cases, being a woman. This is a serious crime that should be treated as such. This is a a message, the idea of concerns over sexual assault that has been out there for a long time. Sexual assault is not a new offense, and we have had many women victimized for so long. What do you think made the world ready to hear it now? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one would hope, first of all, finally, time after time, it starts to sink in. But I think more importantly... It hit celebrity culture, and in a way, maybe this is a kind of comment on where we are as a society, but when you start talking about uh, people like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, or you have famous actresses uh, making statements in the world in which we presently live, where we pay a lot of attention to uh, celebrity culture and on the online virtual world, that really registers. So it's kind of ironic. It's been happening to all people for a long time. But when we start putting names and faces and personalities to it that we recognize, rightly or wrongly, as famous people, it seems to have had a bigger impact. Precedent matters so much in the law. What does this precedent, do you think, suggest going forward? Well, of course, uh, in the U.S. terms, it'll have more precedential value than here. But I think in symbolic terms, it will have an impact across the border as well, because here you have a case where uh, the traditional sentence would have been much lower, but the court and the judge has come down and said, no, this is a really serious matter. I'm going to go with 23 years. And I think that will be noted by many judges looking at issues of sentencing. I'm not saying they're going to do that kind of sentence. And uh, it does make you think that the profile of Mr. Weinstein and the publicity may have had an impact, maybe something, almost certainly something his appeal lawyers may look at. But nonetheless, I think judges and uh, society generally are going to look at this and say, it's about time. Professor McKay, thank you so much for your thoughts on this today. No problem. Thanks for your interest. Yesterday we were talking about something very different with regard to our healthcare system. And we were looking at healthcare needs, where we're pretty lucky in this country. If you don't feel well, you have somebody you can go and see 
pretty much at a moment's notice. If something is very serious, if you've ever walked into an emergency room and you've had a severe cut or you've had a severe break or you have severe symptoms of something, you rock it up to the top of the line and you are seen instantly. That happens. And we're pretty lucky for that. But what if you didn't even feel comfortable going to that emergency room? What if an experience in the past had caused you to say, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to deal with whatever ailment I have because, because of what has happened? Well, it just so happens that a Transpulse Canada survey that is now being used by Western University to hopefully promote some more changes in policy and things like that have shown that when it comes to transgender and non-binary Canadians, nearly half who responded to a survey say they have faced unmet health care needs in just the past year. And we talked about this yesterday, and it's, it's something that you can listen to the numbers about, like the numbers that I can quote here, but until you actually hear a personal story, they're just numbers. They're just numbers that don't necessarily touch you. Joining us right now on London Live is Megan Miller. And Megan, first off, I want to thank you for being here on London Live today to share your story. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, So, do you want me to just get right to it? Well, I mean, absolutely. If it's something that that you feel comfortable telling, you you tell us everything you feel comfortable telling us. Well, being out, I've been out for about five, six years now. And that's about a quarter of my life. Going to the hospital before, it was fine. It was no no big deal. Experience was fine. As soon as I started coming out, then people kind of, like I've had doctors come into the room, look at the chart and leave the room because they see a, a different name than what's presented. Um, and... To me, like that, that's a little discouraging. Not only that, like I'm from the Sarnia area. I did live in London, and unfortunately, the Sarnia Hospital. When you go get called into the back, they give you, they call your name, and sometimes they don't even look at the preferred name. So, like that's a scary. Yeah. So uh, when you when you are filling out your forms, you would obviously have to use your health card. They're calling yeah. the name that's on the card instead of a preferred name. Yeah. And not all the time they do put the preferred name down, but it's at the top of the chart. It's not with the rest of the the names. So sometimes the doctors don't look at the top of the chart. They just look at the names. And which I do condemn London's hospitals because they use the number system over Sarnia Hospital. Now, we have seen some policy changes come in, and we talked about this yesterday. Are you finding that you have an opportunity when you fill out forms, when it comes to healthcare forms, that you have an opportunity to put down whether it is a preferred name, whether it is uh, the preferred pronouns that you would like used, or that sort of thing? If I'm filling them out myself, yes, I do have that. I have more options for that, um, which is great. Um, but sometimes you don't get that option. Sometimes they just fill it out for you. 
In terms of overall care, you know, have have you yourself or have you talked with people who have said, I know that I have to get something checked out. I don't feel comfortable doing it. Uh, myself, personally, I've done that. And fortunately, I ended up getting a massive eye infection where I had to go. Um, but it started out small and that started escalating and I was told by several people to go. And you mentioned the experience you may have had with a doctor where the doctor walks into the room, walks out of the room. Was it that sort of thing that was prompting you to say, eh, maybe this will go away on its own, I'm, I'm not going to go? That is more of the, the things that would stop me from going, yes. What would change your experience? Do you think this is something that will evolve over time, or is there something that we could be doing now that we could be doing better? Um, well, for me, personally, I feel like it will evolve over time as the chance to me start, like, because we're fighting it. We're basically challenging the normal standards. But I do feel like right now, if doctors were trained and more accepting and open to the possibility that a male name may go with a female body, and just walk in and act like nothing, like they're they're just a patient. That's it. There's someone there to get their medical expertise, and not someone there to be judged. Certainly, we're talking with Megan Miller, and we're talking about experiences in healthcare as a trans or non-binary person. And you know, the name would would sound so simple. I mean, how many names do we have? Whether it's Chris, whether it's Terry, you can name you know. Males, females, anybody in those particular names, and, and it wouldn't seem to be that big a deal. Exactly. It, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but unfortunately, not just the hospitals, the society has deemed that these are female names and these are male names when there really shouldn't be any disclose between the two different. Megan, if we take it away from a healthcare setting, life as a trans or non-binary person in a day-to-day setting, how is that? It's very difficult. Um, because there's different, um, like even getting a job, that's difficult. Getting housing, renting a place, that's difficult. Um, just because a lot of people, they see it and they they don't want to be supporting it and unfortunately it's hard to prove that and those cases that you can prove do end up winning in court but it's very difficult and just walking down the street you don't feel safe not 100% of the time unless you're with a group of people Well, Megan, we really thank you for sharing your story, sharing your perspective. And, you know, time is one of those things that sometimes doesn't feel like it's coming fast enough. Here's hoping that, you know, bringing this to light, you being able to come and and tell your story publicly, those sorts of things. Let's hope that makes a difference. I hope so, too. Megan, thanks for the time. Thank you. Dr. Mario Alaya joins us on London Live. And Dr. Alaya, why don't we 
begin by just talking about how many times COVID-19 comes up in conversations that you have in sort of your day-to-day. So obviously it's coming up quite a bit in conversation. People are hearing about it in the news and, and asking questions in clinic. And my Twitter feed is, is uh, it, it's medically focused at the best of times. So obviously everyone's talking about COVID-19 there. So it's, it's uh, t- top of mind. Again, we, we haven't seen any, any new cases locally. Um, but uh, it's definitely something that we're keeping a close tabs on, especially with what's happening in the U.S. When you look at what is happening in the U.S., it tends to raise concerns, and you get people who say, well, i got to buy up all the hand sanitizer, i got to buy up all the toilet paper, i got to fill my pantry with cans, i got to do all of these things, and some people are doing that, but Dr. Elia, yeah. where would you put the level of concern? Well, I think, you know, given what we're seeing in the, in the U.S., with as they're testing more, they're seeing more and more cases, uh, I, I think the level of concern has to, has to be at a higher level, certainly, than it was last week uh, for us here, here in Ontario. And that should lead to us being you know, more careful about, uh, uh, about things that we can do something about. So um, we talked before about good hand-washing, um, not touching your face, uh, not going out when you're sick. Those things should become even more uh, important to us, uh, given the, the risk of community spread being higher. Now, at the same time, we have COVID-19, the new coronavirus, that is prompting a lot of discussions like the one that we're having right now. We don't tend to have these same discussions or feel this same level of concern when it comes to whether it's the flu or sometimes we'll get pertussis, whooping cough going around, and yet we don't seem to talk about it in the same way. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, I actually just did a house call on a patient and she's a senior and she brought up a good point that, you know, at the best of times when she never likes being in our waiting room because she doesn't want to get sick. And part of that's generational, right? Where, where people of a certain vintage have seen, have seen outbreaks and they see people get sick quickly and they want to protect themselves. So those kind of common sense things, uh, that we've, we've been preaching for a while are, are, are important now, but are always important. Right, and, and we want to take that same approach. That being said, what we're seeing with with countries like Italy, with with um, their intensive care units being being kind of being overrun, um, that kind of gives us a, a heightened sense of even want to be even more diligent uh, in terms of prevention of, of of any spread that we we may see in the community uh, in the coming weeks. Now, is is it just a case of hey, because this is new, we have the opportunity to have it contained? Is that why we see this focus? I think so, uh, because there is the uncertainty, right? There is the, uh, the, 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 the uncertainty with what's happened globally that we sometimes don't see with influenza. Like, again, yearly with influenza, we see thousands of deaths. So it, it's not a, a magnitude issue necessarily, but um, th- there is the uncertainty of not knowing kind of how this progresses. And, and if there is something we can do locally um, to flatten out that curve, you know, to, to, so we don't get that huge surge early and to... Uh, to if there are going to be cases to have them kind of slowly over time, that's an approach we want to take uh, from from a, from a resource and and uh, to, to keep our system sustainable. We're talking with Dr. Mario Alaya, and we're just looking at where things sit right now and where things sit in terms of questions that patients have and questions that everyone else has in terms of not feeling well. I mean, we've been reminded for a few years now, and most employers will do this and schools will do this. They will say, hey, if you're not feeling well for whatever reason, you need to stay home. Is that one of those things that we need to maybe even raise higher on the list of to do? This is the most important thing. So you look at all of the kind of smaller outbreaks we've seen in the U.S. where there's been uh, you know, an outbreak at a, at a conference in, in, in Boston 
and uh, and 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 smaller outbreaks like that. Those have been often the 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 consequence of of someone who is mildly ill, still going to large gatherings, still doing things in public that that I get largely avoided. So the example here in London, and and um, I, I would highly encourage people that if they are sick, so that means a cough, a runny nose, a fever, shortness of breath, anything suggesting respiratory illness, that they keep to themselves and they isolate themselves at home until they're feeling completely resolved. Um, whether that be going to work, whether that be going to church, whether that be going to school, whether that be going to the Knights game on Friday, whether that be going to the Lightning game tonight, if you are sick, stay home because this can escalate if people don't take those proper precautions. Now, in terms of how long someone would have to isolate themselves, because that's the whole thing. I mean, you wonder, well, when am I contagious? When am I not contagious? Is there a yeah. rule of thumb we can give to people to say, yeah, if you're not feeling well, take these couple of days. But when do you know when you're feeling well enough to kind of rejoin regular life? The excellent question that I will actually defer to a conversation between them and their doctor, um, because depending on the severity of symptoms, depending on the kind of symptoms they have, uh, the the, uh, the advice will differ. Um, so I, I, I'll defer that to a conversation to uh, between them and their healthcare provider. Uh, but certainly, if they're uh, at least within the first, uh, uh, generally within the first two weeks of symptoms, uh, they, they 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 should be isolating. The first week is really the most critical. Um, but before they go back into any any um, any setting where they're going to be around a lot of people, best to talk to their healthcare provider just for, just for some specific advice around their case. Definitely a good point. And in terms of you know when you get sick, should you alert your family doctor that hey, you know what, uh, I may not come and see you, but I, I'm not too I'm not feeling too well. Right now, if you're sick with a travel history, um, calling calling not just walking into the office, but calling is actually uh, not a bad idea. Um, we're probably going to see an, an expansion of the case definition of who needs testing. Because up till now, it's only been people who with any respiratory symptoms and a travel to one of a few countries uh, who, would, who would be eligible for testing. That will likely be expanded over the next day or two from what I'm hearing from public health in the hospital. Um, so it, it is helpful for your family physician to be aware if you've traveled and have respiratory symptoms, so cough, runny nose, um, uh, fever, shortness of breath, anything like that, uh, letting, letting the doctor know um, so that when testing is available on a, on a, on a wider scale that we can get that, um, uh, that looked at. And I guess as a final question and just getting back to that level of concern, just because you have a runny nose, just because you start to cough, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that what you have is you know, the novel coronavirus that we don't know a whole lot about, right? Absolutely. So the majority of, of viruses out there are still rhinovirus, uh, other forms of coronavirus, not COVID-19. Uh, so the overwhelming majority of, of, uh, of viruses in the community are not COVID-19. So absolutely, that is a critical message. Uh, and we, uh, like, you said, like we said before, we do not want people panicking about this. This is not a reason to panic. Um, uh, but if, if in the context of a travel history, and, and uh, respiratory symptoms, uh, that, would be, that would be a case where, again, still not panic, but potentially letting your healthcare professional know that that's going on um, via, via phone call and still not a, not a huge urgency to let them know, but, but even just a quick phone call. Okay. Dr. Elia, thank you so much for everything. The hospital mask situation, is that still a situation? Uh, still a situation. The, the, the protocols for testing are actually changing from N95 
five down to just a procedure mask, so that'll ease a bit of the burden. Uh, N95 masks are uh, a bit more scarce and, and more expensive, so that's that's just been changed in the province uh, that procedure masks are sufficient um, for almost all contact with anybody with COVID-19. So that's, that's um, a reassuring piece of news from today. But the idea is don't be hoarding masks thinking you're going to need them because there are healthcare professionals who do need them. Yes. And, and, and wearing a mask, so if you do not have symptoms, wearing a mask will not protect you from getting uh, any respiratory illness. Uh, it's, so it's not worth wearing masks out in, in public if you don't have something. If you do have something, wearing a mask even around the house can protect can protect family. So that's not a bad idea. Um, but uh, the idea of you know hoarding masks or something like, or anything like that, we need uh, continue to stay away from that approach. Okay, Doctor Laya, all the best. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from one to three. 